I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins coming at you with one more of these Q5 podcasts that I know you love so much. I've got five questions that I like to ask in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy practice, and then I take these and do a little translational work and ask some really cool people the same five questions so that you can compare notes, listen through the different episodes, and see how do these different so diverse people answer the same five questions. And once you scratch below the surface, let's see how similar and different we actually are. Today, I've got a treat for you. On the podcast, I've got Dr. Chris Aiken, MD, who is a psychiatrist who specializes in mood disorders and focuses on natural therapies. He's the editor-in-chief of the Carlat Psychiatry Report, one of a few psychiatric journals that has never accepted a dime for the pharmaceutical industry. And you should check that out. I've benefited professionally immensely from the Carlat Psychiatry Report. He hosts two podcasts, a professional one for Carlat and another for patients called The Pocket Psychiatrist. He found the Mood Treatment Center in North Carolina after completing his medical training at Yale, Cornell, and Duke. Chris, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you, Doc. Well, let's get rocking and rolling with question number one. What's your story? Well, my story doesn't have a good beginning. I was a terrible student. In elementary school, I didn't know what was going on or why people were learning all these things and did, got terrible grades. I just liked to play outside with friends. So by the time I was 12, I really had this idea that I would become what you might call a paper pusher, that I would move paper from one file to another and organize files. I figured that was something I could do, my career aspiration. But I read some books around then. I hadn't read any books, but we had to start reading books around the age of 12. And they just opened up my mind. And just by strange coincidence, the two books I read, The Psychiatrist Was the Villain. And they were... <laughs> Do you remember what the two books were? I'm super curious. You might guess one of them. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. Classic. Yeah. And the other was called I Am the Cheese. It was popular back then, but it's told from the point of view of a person going through a psychotic episode. And for the whole book, we think it's real. And then we realize the psychiatrist is messing with him and things like that. So oh, wow. I didn't know what psychiatry was. I, it wasn't on my radar but I came into this field really from the point of view that the psychiatrist was the bad guy and that they were doing harm to people who were trying to develop personally 
and they didn't want people to be independent and free and develop. This is my 12-year-old mindset. And so <laughs> okay. I, thought, I was going to say, you, you went into the field knowing that it was full of villains, and that was what you felt like you're calling was. Yeah, like I'd, I'd like to be a mafia guy and, and reform the mafia <laughs> system so that yes. they don't beat people up, you know? so Nice, like, yes. I, this might have some sense with my background of really thinking of myself as incompetent, that will, I can go into a field where they're doing everything wrong and, and he'll shape it up, you know? <laughs> so I'm going to mess up yeah, in the yeah. other field. <laughs> so the books really, really paved the way. And then books also got me thinking about what it's like to be another person. And that just opens up so many doors for you. And that brought me into psychiatry. Wow. That's a hell of an origin story there, right? For a hero or a villain or an anti-hero uh, psychiatrist. I like that a lot. Have you? Let me ask you, have you read Stella Maris by Cormac McCarthy? It was his last novel that he published at the end of his life. The whole thing is just a conversation between a patient and her psychiatrist, and it is phenomenal. Wow, so I would love to read that. And I hope the psychiatrist out. is not a total villain because I've, I've come to appreciate that there's just a lot of different views in the world and uh, it's not so black and white. Yeah, exactly. He's the psychiatrist is not a villain, but it's a genre bender like between the two of them in their conversation. It's kind of a, a sub uh, novel to his other last work called the passenger. So it's characters from the passenger that are just sort of pulled out and you get a peek behind the curtain into their uh, discussions in therapy. So check out the passenger and then check out Stella Maris. If you get the chance, I think you in particular and the audience in general would really enjoy reading Cormac McCarthy's last two novels. And the recommendation is to read Stella Maris before the passenger and see how reading the second book first frames and influences things differently than if you were to read them in the chronological order. It seems like Cormac McCarthy maybe from beyond the grave has a message for mm. us all. Oh, I love it. I love that. That's a great writer. And you know, the other thing this did was it it it's launched me into the arts. So my first career was actually with literary magazines. And as part of that, nearly all of my friends were artists and writers. And I myself have never had mental illness. So I, I come at this from really wanting to understand it. And many of my friends, they would take a week off and be in bed all day or go to a psychiatric hospital. And in my 20-year-old, 25-year-old mindset, I thought that they were just like taking some rest and relaxation. Like, you know, I didn't really think of them as having mental illness. That wasn't, I couldn't conceive that way. So I did end up going the other way and realizing from my friends' experiences, they shared more with me that there are real mental illnesses that can set you apart from functioning in a way that I had never experienced. So I come at this from both angles of really trying to respect people's own individuality and goals and understanding that their minds can lead them in the wrong direction sometimes. Yeah, trying to bring a certain amount of unity, even though you feel maybe to a degree like an outsider to your own tribe in psychiatry. You're the mafia guy that wants to reform the mafia. Yeah. But then also trying to bring some compassion to the patients who, you know, you haven't had the same struggles, but you recognize that they're real and that they have significant impacts on their lives. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you... you you look back at psychiatric history, which these books were drawn from, you know, they were inspired by stuff going on in the sixties. We just keep making a lot of the same mistakes and thinking we've grown up and, and we're not going to make those mistakes again. Things like lobotomy on down. 
Yeah, yeah. It was, what, 1949 when someone got the Nobel Prize for their particular style of lobotomy that was the least impactful. If you could just slide an ice pick in the corner of their eye, it'd be so much less messy. Yes, that'll ah give this man the Nobel Prize. Brilliant. Psychiatric surgery. I'm glad we moved past that stage of development rather rapidly. Well, I, I didn't get too far past it. So at, at Yale, I ended up renting a room in that guy's house he was dead but they had taken it over as like a historical <laughs> museum oh my gosh and wow. so he, he had married um the this fulton very wealthy family so he had married into wealth so it was this huge mansion that i had to be the caretaker of and right next to my bed on the other side of the wall were all the brains that he had studied oh my god in jars cut for historical oh, tell me more <laughs> Tell me all about this haunted mansion where you saw lobotomized brains. Well, uh, something like that. I mean, akin. Really what was going on was the whole Nobel Prize was more focused on the role of the frontal lobes. But you're right. It's mm -hmm. related to the lobotomy. So right. the frontal lobe, the lobotomy was taken out the frontal lobes, which. Sure. Um, and, and this gets to the, the fact that, well, let's back up lobotomies work. If you're just yeah, looking at okay. it from an objective point of view. The patient objectively behaves better. But there's an example of where we miss things in psychiatry because we're not incorporating the patient's experience. We're just looking at them like an object. So if you, and that's one error that we make. We just look at one angle and think, well, this is better. So everything must be better. But the brain and human existence is so complicated. And, and that's why I love this field. I've been forced to look at it from every angle to try to steer the ship in the right way. And it's still rough winds. Yeah, we we want to oversimplify things and we want it to be a basic mechanical sort of thing where if I just slide slot, you know, square peg A into square hole B, uh, you know, like that's the diagrams that we get, basic mechanisms of action in neuropsychopharmacology, right? Like there's that receptor level taking a look at, ah, yes, if we can just tap the an MDA receptor in a particular way, then all these second messengers send out all of these, you know, all this, uh, you know, Stephen Stahl level expert neuropsychopharmacology stuff still like it's hard to understand. It's hard to pass the tests on understanding all of that stuff. And it still feels to some degree like an oversimplification compared with what a person is, right? Hmm. That's a really good point that it's hard to understand. And yet it's an oversimplification. I love that, man. <laughs> that's, that's right on the money. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you talked some about maybe your origin story being drawn in by books and some connections with friends in your 20s around seeing the impact of real mental illness and then living in a haunted mansion while you were at Yale or something along those lines. And But you know, you've, you've got a few more decades to run through in your story there. Yeah. What? Oh, tell, me, yeah. tell me a bit more. Yeah. So I after Yale, I went on to residency and I was drawn to the psychoanalytic field. Like that's really the field that tries to understand everything about human nature. I loved working with those people. They were curious and open about everything and non-judgmental and non-reactive to everything, or at least that's how it felt to me. You know, they're human beings I've learned too. And if you Google an article in The Guardian, you'll see that they're quite flared up in the past year over actually global politics, just like the rest of the world is. They've, the group has splintered and they've even, their president had to resign this year. It's been really bad. But I had a wonderful experience with them, worked at the Menninger Clinic some, which is a psychoanalytic clinic. And 
then through twist of fate ended up at Duke, which was really a biological psychiatry program. So I ended up with a mafia boss, you know, the gentleman who wrote the DSM-4 was the chair there and they were doing all the pharmaceutical research. And time and again, I've been to so many programs and so many learning experiences. I've had to confront fields that I thought were not for me and not for my patients and incorporate them in. So from behaviorism to medication, to natural treatments, to psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, I, I've had phases where I've been against all of these. And I stand before you now as really someone who's learned to embrace the best that all of these have to offer for the complexity of people's needs. Wow. Now from there, I also like got this idea in my head when I graduated Duke that well, I'd worked on the Duke campus treating the students and they're a pretty good bunch. So I realized that some of these folks, you just give them some simple advice and they take it and run with it. They don't need 12 sessions of therapy. We were taught as therapists not to give simple advice, but I was starting to realize there's a lot out there you can learn about how to live a mentally healthy life. And that's what got me into lifestyle psychiatry, which is a, another field that opened up. And I started to collect just anything you can do in your life that improves your mental health and um, came out with a book about that, 30 Ways to Change Your Brain. It's everything from darkness at night to Mediterranean diet, all the lifestyle approaches there. Yeah, we try to bring that in. My friend, Dr. Kristen Dawson and I at our clinic in Lexington, it's an integrative psychiatry clinic, we call it. And we, we have these seven pillars and it's all the things you're describing there, sleep and movement and exercise and spirituality and, and all of those sorts of things. Because it all moves the needle, right? If It's all a percentages game. There's no magic bullet. There's nothing that's going to get you 100% there. But if something moves the needle 2%, something else does it 8%, something else does it 10%, you're 20% better from doing three different things than what you were doing before, right? The math makes sense to us anyway. So yeah, I think that, it adds you know, up. Yep, it really does. Yeah, it, it all does. You know, like just syncing up your circadian rhythm with the planet that you live on makes a really big difference, right? That's awesome. I didn't know that you'd written that book. I'll have to check that book out for sure. Yeah, and as part of writing it, I, I had to do all those things myself. So changed my life as well, can speak for it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Oh, so you, was it Francis Allen that you were under at Duke as far as the DSM-4? Yeah, I, I came right after Alan Francis left and I got it backwards. Ranga <laughs> Krishnan had taken over. Okay, but yeah, gotcha. it, was all, it was all the spirit of Duke. You know, medicine in America really started with Johns Hopkins, the big university, and they brought the medical scientific model from Germany. And Duke wanted to be exactly like Johns Hopkins. So bottom line is it was a very scientific model. And this whole thing caused me to have to question everything I might believe or think intuitively is true. So it's caused a lot of self-doubt. And you can imagine with my background as the worst student in the class, I'm full of self-doubt <laughs> anyway. So I just embrace yeah. it. Like, And I think we know so little and we have so few very effective therapies that Doubting yourself is a good way to be a psychiatrist. Maybe I wouldn't be such a great surgeon, you know. Oh, should I cut here? I <laughs> yeah, no, that's excellent. Like, and that's kind of 
you know, that, that being confronted about your philosophy of science and your philosophy of learning all of these things over and over again from, you know, psychoanalysis at one end of the spectrum to biological psychiatry at the other would certainly, to, to the degree that you're able to integrate those different perspectives, you could potentially be the best psychiatrist on the planet. Not that I'm implying anything about that, but that's a, that's an amazing background. So you became kind of a made man in the psychiatry mafia at that point. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're not supposed to talk about that doc. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Just let the awkward silence continue for all of the audience. I love it. (laughs) So, uh, after Duke, what, what happened next? Well, I love small Southern cities, so I, I appreciate you're from Lexington, right? I'm in Louisville, but Louisville. Uh, I work in clinics in both places. Wow. Yep. I would love it there. And and so yeah. I just- Come visit in. anytime. You're oh, welcome anytime. Great. I will take you up on it, Doc. And I, I've moved out like you to the Appalachian area, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, right on the border of Appalachia. Yeah, and beautiful place. It's just been- such a great experience. Everybody told me not to do it. They're like, Chris, it's a desert out there. And uh, all my friends wanted to work in New York City, where in New York City, they treat people who pay privately. They have no insurance. They don't use insurance and they pay like $500 a session. Um, Well, you're not going to see people with severe mental illness that way. So what I've learned working out in rural and Appalachian area of North Carolina is People just speak whatever's going on with them. They don't filter it through all these cultural, educated kind of layers of having read so many New Yorker articles that they filter their symptoms through. They just tell you Uh, exactly what they're going through. They say, Doc, I don't know what's happening, but I just can't (laughs) stop hitting people. And strangely, I haven't slept in a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, (laughs) so it really brought me face to face with true mental illness, seeing it very laid bare. And I actually, my first job was working at a college. So it was really laid bare because that's when mental illness really strikes between age 15 and 20. So I was seeing it strike in its pure form and really getting a good sense, a great education of what the pure symptoms are like. So I could recognize them when they often in our field, they show up after 20 years of trouble and drugs and stress, and they just look different. So that gave me an appreciation for that and an appreciation for one particular illness that I, I saw was being missed a lot was bipolar disorder. It wasn't on my radar right. before, yeah, yeah. but I ended up working with that a lot just because of the part of the country I was in and that's who was coming to my door and I, right. I wanted to help them more. Yeah. Some of my favorite people in the world have that diagnosis, right? They, uh, and it takes, it, I think it was an average of like seven or eight years of seeking treatment before somebody gets the appropriate diagnosis they finally see someone who understands you know the okay well well, let's the spectrum of what's going on there for me here with my story it's like 10 or 15 years because let's trace back to where i started in the arts community and i thought there was nothing wrong with them at all that they were just eccentric well you know now i go back and revisit my old friends and it turns out they all have bipolar as well so it took me a long time to pick up on that and appreciate it I was fortunate enough, my first mentor in psychiatry was uh, Dr. Bob Stewart, who was a graduate from Duke, 
who taught me to do a real good bipolar rule out on every depression patient that comes in because people are coming in when they have the depression, half of what's going on, right? Nobody's coming in while they're feeling like they're on top of the world unless their family recognizes it and drags them into the hospital or something. But doing a real good bipolar rule out on every depression patient was something I was fortunate enough to learn early on and I think has served me well and served the, the patients even, even more thoroughly, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'm glad you're doing that. That brings me to, to really where I am after that. And I hope this story will inspire people that you, I didn't really have much direction. As you can tell, I drifted around. I was not a stellar student, except in a few areas where I was able to shine and get into good schools. And once I'm in those good schools, it's like I'll immediately go and talk to the older professors. I always thought the older people had more wisdom and more to share. And so really learning one-on-one close to people, get close to your teachers and don't worry about how many weaknesses you have. I mean, I'm just telling you my my good parts of my story. I, I literally failed yeah. at many things, got held behind, mm. failed. So just focus on your strengths and you will build something with that. And that brought me to the last 10 years where I've been able to take what I learned along the way and turn it into books and editing and media projects mm. and teaching others. Yeah. yeah, just don't give up. That's that's kind of the bottom line. A lot of the time is people give up maybe a little too easily right before right before things are about to crack through, you know? It's always darkest before the dawn and all those cliches that are cliches because they're so true, right? Well, that's awesome. I really appreciate you sharing your story. You have an awesome story, and I, I think a lot of people will be able to connect with that. That's only the first question. I feel like we could talk for a really long time, but I want to keep things rocking and rolling here. I ask people about their story to engage with memory and history and where they're from, and then I ask people about what are your intentions to, to hear about their imagination and where they see themselves going in the future. So what are your intentions, Doc Chris Aiken? Well, I honestly told you that I wasn't driven by much direction, and I'm just living with the same intentions I did 20 years ago, which is fully, I'm I'm a very curious person, just fully trying to learn about all these things I'm curious about, and I'm still, to this day, curious about what it's like to have mental illness and what helps that. I don't feel like I found an answer for that. So my intention is to figure that out and share it with the world, just like I've done for 20 years. Specifically, I want to empower people like from the start to look for ways to improve their lives beyond medications. I'm not against chemistry or anything like that, and I use medications all the time, but they do come with a subtle message of disempowerment that you have to just swallow this pill to get better. And I just don't like that message. So I'm going to look for other ways to add on to that because I know that we all have lives to live. And on that note, an intention, I, you know, I said psychiatry gets it wrong, but culture gets it wrong too. And the culture we live in, and right now in particular, it's been building up. I feel like our culture is psychiatrizing everything. So everything you do is, you know, during COVID, 80% of people had depression. And so, so much of what the way we think about ourselves is through the lens of illness, So an intention I have is to break that lens and limit how we use that lens of illness only when it really genuinely applies and help empower people to think of themselves more creatively than the DSM. I don't see the DSM as a road of self-understanding. It's more of a diagnostic rough manual there to guide treatments. 
Yeah, it's a it's a quick and dirty guide, not to be too hard on it. I, I like the research domain criteria a little bit. I think they're a little bit more specific and a little bit more useful, but they're hard to use in clinic, right? They're more designed for the clinical trials. But I think that level of specificity on one level, having that in the background and asking the good questions around those things at, at first, and then narrative allowing people to just tell their story in a narrative way and you being the clinician, bringing together the specificity of the research domain criteria and then the narrative of whatever a patient walks in the door from in Winston-Salem or in Lexington, Kentucky, or in New York, New York, wherever they might be. I feel like that's the future of diagnostic work outside of you know trying to bring in biomarkers and imaging and all of the whiz-bang technology that's being developed that we can try to bring in there. But I think that it makes a bit more, it gets you a a bit closer to what somebody's actual experience is and a better diagnosis alongside of it so you can make that that treatment plan in place. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I can't wait for a good book to come out that really illuminates the various criteria you're talking about from NIH. But my understanding is it tends to be what we might think of as traits or temperaments, like impulsivity is a trait. And mm, yeah. Um, you know, if we take bipolar disorder, if, if I turn that into a research DOC, I would look mainly at circadian rhythm dysregulation. And that's what I tell people with bipolar, right. that they have a fragile right. circadian rhythm. You're just somebody who's going to get really off kilter if you travel long distance or go through seasonal changes or don't get your sleep right. So it's, it's destigmatizing. But, uh, you know, you remind me, someone this morning asked, I just got this report on a patient all this uh, diagnosis of autism from a psychologist, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, it's true. That's not going to guide your medication. But I think that's where this criteria you're talking about applies well, that when we take a big word like autism, which means many different things, what we ought to do is break it down into that person's strengths and weaknesses and help them minimize the damage that their weaknesses might cause in their life and help them maximize how they utilize their strengths. Yeah, no, I think that's really insightful. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. Are you familiar at all with Dr. Chris Palmer's work out of Harvard around metabolic psychiatry and maybe that there might be some some mitochondrial dysfunction that underlies some like genetically or epigenetically conditioned mitochondrial dysfunction that might be underlying some of the both high manic states and low depressive states in bipolar 1? Yeah, he wrote a book on that and one thing that's brain energy. Yeah, that's and it, and it's uh it's big, you know, it's not some um sideshow like at our bipolar conference in Australia a few years ago, metabolic dysfunction was the theme of the whole conference. So it's right. it's really right. important. What's so unique that you touched on there, it, it makes me a little uncomfortable is it's the first time in my history that, that I know of where a lifestyle technique, which is what I've spent my whole career trying to bring attention to, there's no money in them, someone's got to bring attention, where a lifestyle technique has millions of dollars behind it. because, And so there's a lot of promotions of this keto diet. Really, what it boils down to is he's got this theory, which is solid, and then the theory leads to a treatment, which is the ketogenic diet. And they did just publish the first study 
but it was just a feasibility study showing it's possible to do. And I, I want listeners to know this is not a normal diet. Like you have to measure ketones to make sure you've induced a pharmaceutical state of ketoacidosis through the diet. L- little digression, that was actually my med school project was seeing how the brain fuels itself on ketones when you're in starvation. Okay. Part, yeah, yeah. part of my own history there, and this relates to the diet, is I grew up in an evangelical family, Christian. Okay. And people yeah, would go me on, too. Oh, you did? I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Dispensationalists. Yeah. The world was going to end a long time ago, and wow, here we all still are, you know? Way, way more. <laughs> way more. But uh, I did have people would go on fasts like my dad would for a month. Yes. Okay. And, you know, if for you For a go, month? Yep. It, it, just drinking fruit juice, a little bit of fruit yeah, juice, yeah. stay alive. Okay. But and this happened to Al Green, the singer, as well. He went to to the North Carolina mountains and went on a fast. If you go on a fast for a month, it will induce a spiritual state in just about anybody. And it's a part of this ketogenic. Oh, yeah. ketogenic Jesus diet. didn't eat for forty days and forty nights out in the wilderness oh, before he it, fought man. with the devil, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. that led me, you know, <laughs> that experience with it's not mental illness, but it's a change of mental state in my family to lead to understand that in medical school and how the brain metabolizes ketones in a fasting state. Sure. And now yeah, they're it using slides it to treat into a different, uh, like, wow. slides into a different rate limiting step than glucose in the Krebs cycle. Right. Yeah. So you get, you know, super powered energy for brain function. I, I would, I was on the keto diet for about three years at one point. I, I, I was looking at it in terms of the literature around performance enhancement in ultra marathon training. So I was training for a Spartan ultra while I was in the army's physician assistant school and just decided to go to go, uh, you know, varsity and do the keto diet the whole time I was in school and then go run this, you know, 30 plus mile obstacle course race or whatever. And I don't think I ran any faster being keto, but I think I recovered faster. Like usually if I did something like that, it'd be like a week or two of paying for the decision to do something that stupid. And it was only like three or four days that I was like as sore as I might normally be. The other thing that's interesting is, um, beyond the keto diet, right? Because it was designed for pediatric epilepsy in the first place to try to prevent seizures. Yeah, and it does Translating that into other contexts is really, it's it's such a restrictive diet. Like how do you, you know, like there's what, like two carbs in a Tic Tac or something. It's real hard to, to oh, get down below. That's why the, um, day. the feasibility study is important, even though it doesn't show that it works. It showed patients will do it. Yeah, they'll, they'll give it a shot. Yeah. Let, let me uh, explain why I'm uncomfortable with it, though. Is it, so this is the first life. There's millions of dollars behind it because if you know the video game Roblox, and this is all on YouTube, the family that founded Roblox are multi-billionaires, and their, their son developed bipolar, and he didn't respond to any medications. So he eventually got recovery with the ketogenic diet through this Harvard approach. And now they have created a foundation. So there's a lot of money behind okay. it. And okay. not just behind the with research. With a lot of money comes a lot of bias. Sure. Yeah. Right. So they're starting movements. There's a lot of a hype. So it's the first time I've seen a lifestyle thing get hyped like pharmaceuticals do that way. If I remember right, one of the first published studies on the keto diet in bipolar disorder in humans was from Dr. Riff L. Malik at the University of Louisville, where he had two bipolar one patients that he put on the ketogenic diet and was able to reduce polypharmacy, at least with it. It wasn't like, you know, a cure. It wasn't a magic bullet. But I've, I've been able to do the same thing with 
particular phenotypes of bipolar one and bipolar two patients where at least maybe we can get them off of their atypical antipsychotic if they can stay on this diet. The other thing that I've incorporated is ketone ester supplements. Have you looked into these at all? They're like a, the fourth fuel is what they call it to try to deal with the Warburg effect of how glucose gets metabolized in insulin resistant people and whether the insulin resistance comes as a part of the bipolar condition or secondary to the way that somebody lives with that condition or secondary to the medicines that we put them on. Nobody really knows, but the, the ketone esters, I got some right here. They're the, I can't, with the light, it's uh, ketone IQ, HVMN's the company. I subscribe to it because I don't want to do the diet anymore, but I want my brain to run on ketones. So I drink ketone uh, esters every day. They taste like rocket fuel, but they also feel like rocket fuel. And I feel like that's a reasonable trade-off. That's really great. I'm going to try that. So that somebody did ask the researchers if you can just take something because essentially you're getting a pharmaceutical effect with the keto diet. Right. And if you can right. just take the pharmaceutical equivalent and they didn't have an answer for that, but that might come about. You sound like you've found, touched on an answer there. I'm a, uh, I follow like Dom Diagostino is one of the researchers down in Florida, the PhD, you know, he, he, practices what he preaches. I call him the ketogenic Jesus because he's got like all this research that he's done around it and published a bazillion papers on it. Mostly I think in cancer research is where a lot of his stuff is focused because there's a lot of cancers that are glucose dependent. And if you starve the tumors by going on a ketogenic diet, that augments, you know, radiation and, uh, and people wind up having better outcomes and feeling better and having less nausea, having a lot of less of the, the side effects there. So I've kind of followed his work for a few years and they use ketone esters in DARPA. They've tested it to see if Navy SEALs can stay healthy at high altitude and then at, you know, diving at depth and those sorts of things. And it's all kind of neuroprotective to try to prevent people from getting nitrogen narcosis, diving one day and then flying over to Afghanistan and climbing a mountain the next day. That, that's real hard in your system. And one of the ways they try to protect their brains is ketones. So this is, uh, that's some extreme examples. You, you really know a lot about it. I feel like a very simple man because... I've been promoting <laughs> what is the simplest diet in the world is the Mediterranean style diet. There's no calorie counting, right, right. no foods are restricted. But the reason I've been promoting it is there are three or four controlled trials showing that it treats depression, not a little, yes. but with a big effect size, like bigger than what we see with medications. I know that that sounds blasphemous. Right. My colleague. No, it's like, true. You're going to get people to stop their medications. Well, no, I'm just going to get them on a healthy <laughs> diet. I hope like just. Yeah, just olive oil. Yeah. EVOO. And, and if you want to like, learn you know, this diet, go to moodtreatmentcenter.com forward slash lifestyle. And I've I have a free book, a uh, 10 page book on how to do it. And that's what I do myself. I've never dieted in my life. But when I got on this to write the book, the thing is, and this is a side effect, I couldn't get off of it. Now if I yeah, go have a you feel so good. Donut, well, I feel yeah. so bad if I if I <laughs> if I eat a Chick-fil-A sandwich, man. I like I feel terrible yeah. all day and this is yeah. horrible because it's sweet on the tongue, yeah. but bitter. Right. Yeah. So I can't yeah. get off it. It's changed my microbiome or my gut flora, whatever's gone on, my exactly. metabolism. Right. And I'm a different man yeah. because of it. I, nobody warned me. Yeah. No, that's a really yeah, nobody warned me that this was gonna ruin my life and help me live longer at the same time. What torture. Yeah, well, I can't eat that <laughs> stuff that's so enjoyable anymore. So Yeah, who yeah. who wants to live to be a hundred and not eat Krispy Kreme? Like I mean I do. 
I'm okay with that. But yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't have depression. Like I, you know, I didn't have a reason to do this, but I was just trying to right. write a book. Right. So, right. Right. Uh, well, and the Mediterranean diet's considered like the prototypical example of the blue zone diets, right. For health span and longevity on the one end, it does help people in the left tail of the bell curve as far as mood goes, but then it helps people in the right tail of the bell curve that are doing real well and want to, you know, extend their life and not get sick as early. So the the blue zones are all around like where do people live to be centenarians to be a hundred years old. Yeah. So uh, you cool. know if you I'll be, I'll be happy in, book. in 30 years, I'll be happier. That's really good to hear. <laughs> Thank you. Have you heard of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia? His yeah, book about really like big. health span. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his stuff on that or his show on Disney Plus with Thor Limitless. Yeah, they talk mm. all about a whole bunch of that stuff. It's I'll totally check that out. I could nerd out about that forever, but I have more questions to ask you. We sure. Got to get rocking and rolling. I love your intentions there. Thanks for chopping it up with me for a minute. The way that I bridge people's background and people's, uh, you know, futures is to bring it into the present moment to ask them about what are you grateful for? Looking back, I am just grateful for my childhood that came before all this and brought me to where I am. And it, if you don't mind, can I can I read a few lines from a song here? I would love that. All right, Please do. Is, will, will you sing them? Do you have to read them? I, I'm a reader, man. So, All right. <laughs> um, but, but I was a singer and songwriter once. That was another life. But this is from a punk rock musician, Graham Parker. And we don't often hear punk rock musicians give much credit to their family, right? So here it okay. goes. Yeah. This shocked me when, and it, it made me feel about my own life. I hit the ground running. I hit the ground hard. My mother and father watched over me and made sure I never really got hurt. And that's the kind of childhood that wow. I had. I didn't wow. know that my parents were watching over me. They made me feel like I was completely independent and doing my own thing, you know, latchkey kid, not, not helicopter parents. So there was no helicopter sounds. But looking back and comparing my life to other people whose parents weren't watching over them, I was really lucky. Like I had people watching over me and making sure that I didn't really mess up my life while letting me make all the mistakes that I could learn from along the way, which were a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures. But they made sure I didn't totally screw up. And I am so grateful for what they did. I've tried to do that myself as a parent, but its I'm not sure that I have. It's not easy. And, and we do live in the age of helicopter parenting where you're judged if, you, if you're not stepping in and rescuing your kid at every turn. That's what I'm grateful for. And that's something that uh, is the other side of mental illness that we, we've talked a bit about the biology and, you know, it's genetic in some ways. So much uh, of mental illness is also due to childhood trauma and having chaotic upbringings in various ways, like another punk rocker, Sinead O'Connor, the late Sinead O'Connor. Yeah. She famously told, and this is not a true statement that she made, but I still think it's true for her, and I think it has a grain of truth in it. She famously told Spin Magazine, quote, the cause of all the world's problems, as far as I'm concerned, is child abuse. Oh, wow. And yeah. after she died, people were posting that everywhere. And I, you know, my scientific reaction is, well, that's clearly not true. But sure. then I think- Over, overgeneralization, but- But we don't we don't appreciate how true it is. I, don't, I think we don't recognize mm. how much of the world's mm -hmm. problems would be fixed if people had better childhoods. I know that's true for many of my patients. So that's what yeah. makes me grateful for that. I just got interviewed on 
someone else's podcast. My friend, Dr. Ben Peary has a podcast called the grit and he, we were talking about some of the related sorts of things. And I was just kind of imagining like, what if we made it a law that you just had to be nice to pregnant ladies and people who were just born for like a period of time. Like every time you see someone pushing a baby carriage, you got to give them a hundred dollars or leave them the hell alone. One or the other by like, I don't know, we'll make it a capital crime to be unkind to the newest people on the planet just for a year. We'll just test it out. And then you can go back to being mean after that or whatever you need to do. But let's see if we could improve just the the life on this planet by being kind to the littlest ones among us for for a little while. It, it's not a solution. Like it's an imaginary sort of idea around how, how to actually implement that. I don't I wouldn't know. But I think I like the idea a lot. And I like the the spirit of what you're quoting Sinead saying there. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a great idea. And it sounds like a, you got a novel on your hands. It'd be the, the opposite of the handmaid's tale, you know, the, the right, opposite right. universe. Yeah. Where women are yeah. respected and, and motherhood is mm. respected. Yeah. Yeah. What would we call that? We'll come up with a name, you and I, and we'll, we'll co-author that someday yes. when we both retire and we're just writing novels instead. Okay. A utopian <laughs> well, novel. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll incorporate some Cormac McCarthy into it somehow, uh, but maybe a bit less dark. We'll bring a bit more light than Cormac likes to bring or something. Yeah. But I think that'd be beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing about, you know, your childhood and your parents and what you're grateful for. I, I, you may have already answered the fourth question to some degree, but I'm going to ask it anyway. With all of your past and all of your future and all of your gratefulness, what are you creating? Well, I'm increasingly aware, as many of us are, that the, the world is just a crazy place. And, you know, you got temperature change, you got pollution demands on us as human beings that are not natural. We're living in unnatural environments with electric light all night and detached socially from those we care about. So we're all living in a crazy world. We're living in this hamster cage. And sadly, I can't say that I'm creating a better world but I, I've realized my what I am doing is trying to to help us all live more truly and more effectively in the world we live in. Yeah, you're you're doing your part to quote Starship Troopers. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a it's not a big part. I I admire those who are trying to change the world. I, I really do. So hats off to them. Yeah, I think that's all we can we can do to change the world is just do our part, right? I'll do my part, you do your part, and we'll see what happens. For our, we'll do it for the kids. That's beautiful. I appreciate that. Which brings us to the fifth and final question. It's everybody's favorite. It's the identity question. Who are you really, Dr. Chris Aiken? I really am who I am. You know, I'm a pretty straightforward guy. And the life I talk about is the life I live. If you watched me at my home, I'd be talking the same things and walking the same walk. I really love this job. And I think two strains that make me who I am is that I'm very curious. I always want to learn more and um, explore new areas. And I'm very lucky. Like that's not anything of my own doing. And that's what makes me tear up a bit when you ask me what I'm grateful for. Because, you know, I saw this with, with people with mental illness. They come in with their family. They're depressed in bed all day. And their family's like, well, I know the answer. You just got to work harder like I do. You just push yourself. I don't want to get out of bed in the morning either. But I push myself and I make myself get out of bed. And I knew right away that was a person talking who didn't appreciate, they took for granted that that part of their brain is working. Their son's brain is not working and he can't do what they're taking for granted for. And, you know, I kind of 
it's easy to judge that at the beginning of my career, but talking to you and thinking about these questions, I, I really realized that I'm that same person that I take for granted so much of the luck that I've had in my life to get where I am and have the opportunities I've had. Yeah, it's a beautiful answer. I appreciate that intensely. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd want to share with the audience before we wrap up? No, I just really appreciate what you're doing. You're bringing a really broad human stroke to this difficult work. And you're the kind of person we need as we enter this brave new frontier of psychedelic medicine, which <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask me about because I don't feel prepared to talk about. It's, you know, it does circle back to Ken Casey and the flew over the cuckoo's Yeah, book. yeah. It's interesting. The very anti-psychiatrists that wrote those books were also experimenting with psychedelics and they were seeing psychedelics as a real answer and psychiatry as a fake answer. And now we have mainstream psychiatrists stepping in and saying, let's try psychedelics. So that door is about to open and you and I will yeah. be walking through it. I don't know where it's going to lead us. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's figure out some ways to collaborate around some of that sort of stuff as the door opens. I'd love to walk through it with you. I guess on that note, I, I should be um, fully self-disclosure and, and say I've never tried ketamine or psychedelics. I'm I'm not like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or something <laughs> doing that. So I can't endorse yeah, it. Yeah. I can't deny it. I just sure. keep an open sure. mind. My personal experience of it is incredibly limited to, you know, context with other physicians and, you know, in ketamine being the only legal option. That's my experience with it. But I talk a bunch about it in my book, like what my experience is like. So anybody that's curious about my very limited personal experience, I have a lot of, I've read all the papers and I've got the you know, the training from the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, but not a lot of experience providing that therapy yet. But I'm very much excited to see what the future holds for mental health in that regard. Yeah. Good. Thank you for taking it on. And thank you for weaving psychotherapy into the ketamine treatment. That's very necessary. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a beautiful conversation and I've greatly appreciated your time. All right. Thank you, Doc. Bye-bye. Doc out.